You are listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. I hope you're having a happy new year. This is our first episode of 2019. Today I'm talking to Adam McKay, the writer and director of Vice. Adam won the Adapted Screenplay Oscar for his last film, The Big Short, and this is yet another dive into the decay and dysfunction of U.S. government as he sees it. Only this is far more epic in scope, centered on former Vice President Dick Cheney. Christian Bale plays the part in yet another uncanny performance. But if you've noted the critical reaction to this film, it's been incredibly split. I've frankly been a bit taken aback by some of the more uh, uh, grandstandy proclamations, I'll call it. Adam pointed this out himself on Twitter recently. Some find it to be one of the finest films of the year. I'm one of them. Others have literally called it the worst. So, there's a spectrum for you, I guess. I found it to be brilliant, a movie that sank into my bones, honestly, and I was very eager to catch up with Adam to talk about it. If you haven't seen the film, I'd encourage you to do so before listening to this particular episode. However, when I got together with Christian Bale and Sam Rockwell a few weeks ago, Sam plays George W. Bush in the film, we steered pretty clear of too much detail, so that's a safe bet. And I'd encourage you to listen to that anyway, because uh, those two guys are a delight together. But for now, here's Adam McKay and a deep dive into Vice. Hope you enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm here today with Adam McKay, the writer and director of Vice, which is, uh, you know, the wholesome story of Dick Cheney and uh, his shenanigans. And uh, we're happy to have him here today. Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Quite the holiday movie. It's for Christmas. Will. Yeah. It's what every kid wants yeah. under the Christmas tree is a curmudgeonly bureaucratic vice president <laughs> snarling at them. Absolutely. So we deliver. Absolutely. I love the movie, as I was saying earlier. Uh, bravo on it. It had oh. to be just like, is this the kind of movie that when you embark on an undertaking like this, that's going to have a huge spotlight on it for obvious reasons? Are you just freaked out, scared, or just excited, ready to just tell people what you think, essentially? You know, it, it's more that you get excited by the opportunity. And I feel like, you know, after movies I'd done before, I sort of had a little bit of room to give this a shot. Um, so no, I get excited about the open field of it. And, and as soon as I caught wind of this and, and really started to see who Dick Cheney was and really started to research him, I just kept getting more and more excited. So you don't really think about that part of it. Mm -hmm. I guess the first time you really feel that way is when the movie is like going to be released or people start seeing it. Then it hits you a little bit. People start to have takes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the word take becomes involved, then it's a little worrisome. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, tell me, like, give me a little bit of a chronology here. When does the idea to do a movie about Dick Cheney first hit you? So it's like two weeks after the end of the Academy Awards uh, and the run on the big short. Yeah. And my body does that thing that bodies tend to do where it's like, oh, I've been holding on to this horrible flu for months. Here it is all at once. And I think I was sick for three straight weeks. Like it was oh really gosh. crazy. So I was just laid up and I started looking at the bookshelf and it's all these books that friends have given you through the years. And I'd always been kind of intrigued by Cheney. I always felt like there was more, more there than, than we knew about besides the shooting the guy in the face and the Darth Vader jokes. So I just started reading the book and every four or five pages I was going, Oh my God. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> 
pretty soon I, you know, did what we do in at that time, I guess what, 2016, I went online and ordered like five other books and all of the books had me doing the same thing. Like this is an epic American story. This is crazy. I didn't know any of this about this guy. I knew he, you know, had affected history, but the manner in which he did it just blew me away. Yeah. Is there something that like, as you're reading all of this material, is there a certain thread that you're trying to track down because it's obfuscated in this book or, you know, whatever, like trying to put it together with the various source materials, essentially. That was exactly the trick. There were tons of great books that were written about him, but each one kind of had its own take on who he was. And they were looking at certain chapters in his life or certain uh, through lines of what he did when he was in office as vice president. So between reading all of them, it, it really started giving a full portrait. And then there's also, you know, interviews and there's the documentary, Cheney in his own words. And and you just start looking at all of that. And, and that's really how we got the complete picture. And then at that point, when you're trying to track down this mysterious character, then you kind of break glass in case of emergency and you call Christian Bale. <laughs> and you know he's going to get to the center of it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the final move. Yeah. Well, at the beginning of the movie, you know, you've got the, the standard, this is based on the true story. And then uh, you say, or as, as close as it can be, given how secret of a leader he was, mm -hmm. we tried our fucking best, as, as you say at the beginning. Uh, what that leads in, in the whole movie in general left me wondering is how bulletproof did you have to be with your screenplay essentially to avoid any kind of litigation or something like that? Well, you know, I mean, that statement kind of says it all. Like, we did our absolute best. He's so secretive. There are hundreds of thousands of documents that he's never handed over. There are over 20 million emails that have disappeared. There are things he just won't talk about. You know, he, he tends to only do interviews with very sympathetic journalists. So, yeah, we had to research our butts off. And... We had to triple check everything. We hired fact checkers. We actually hired our own journalist at one point who interviewed people from Cheney's circle. It was all off the record, so they would talk to us. But just to make sure we weren't crazy people. The good news is it's out there. You, you can find it. It just took a lot of work. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anything you see that's like policy, times, dates, actions has all been quadruple checked and then there are those couple scenes where just no one else was there besides mm -hmm. Cheney and Rumsfeld mm -hmm. or Cheney and his wife and in those cases you just do the best you can you know you look about people that talked about that moment you look for little flickers of what they said about it and you try and go conservative you try not to do anything too crazy like let's not have Cheney break down in tears here he hasn't mm -hmm. really done that in the rest of the movie so you play a kind of straight line at that point. But uh, yeah, he's a secretive dude, man. He covers his tracks. I mean, I kept joking with my editor, Hank Corwin. I was like, this guy did not want a movie made about him. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth. There's nothing he left out there for anyone to go, hey, let's make a movie about this guy. Yeah. Um, I want to just tell you about my react, my, my, what, what, what I felt after I saw the movie. Sure. And I don't know if it's what you were going for or hoping people would take away, but this this was what I took away. I felt unbelievable emptiness. I felt like I I, I, I stared into the void for a bit afterwards. I felt like I had just I, I said this to Christian and Sam. 
I felt like I had just seen a portrait of a soulless individual. And did you feel that way when you were making it? Is that what is that what you were aiming to kind of portray? I know what you mean. I mean, what really surprised me about the movie was that we looked for his humanity. We wanted to find out who he was. And we wanted to find out who Lynn was and the family. And we feel like we found it. Like there were real people there. There was a real family that cared about each other. And then in the end, just when those daughters were split and it, it I wouldn't say emptiness, but it made me really sad. Mm-hmm. I, that's what struck me about it. And mm-hmm. I never expected to feel that way at the end of a story about Dick Cheney, but I felt, felt sad for him. I felt sad for his daughters. I felt sad for all the people who had suffered because of his policies. Mm-hmm. I felt sad for our crazy country, which seems to have no faith in its own government right now. Uh, And I remember the first time we watched it with a really big crowd. I remember having tears in my eyes Mm -hmm. and I did not expect that. Yeah. Christian said something similar, just profound sadness. I think what, what I'm, what I was taking away was, you know, he says things like when he sees Rumsfeld for the first time, what's he, that's a Republican. That's what I am. Uh, He asks, what do we believe? There's nothing there. Right. And then, and then I, I, I come away wondering why. Uh, this this huge push for power to what end? You're not the president, so you don't get the credit per se. Uh, you don't need the money. Uh, why? And and you know, in some sense, maybe it's he thought he was being a patriot, but it's just not what I came away feeling. And maybe that's my personal politics coming into play. But I just wanted to kind of put that to you and, and ask you, like, what's the why of it for you? I think you know there used to be. I feel like when I was a kid in the 70s and the early 80s, we used to talk about the toll that power would take on people. I feel like we don't talk about it that much anymore. And like power screws you up. Like it's it's the, the biggest drug there is. I mean, there's nothing better than power, not even money, sex, anything else you can think of. Power is the one. I, I originally, in the very first draft of the script, I had some voiceover talking about how power is the thing that comes closest to disguising itself as love uh, because you're needed. People look at you with a, you know, a want in their eyes and it really feels close to love. And I think what you saw was out of the sixties and seventies, not just with the Cheney's, but I think a lot of people in America like this idea of career and ambition and, and this idea of climbing ladders came about and, and to some degree that's fine. But I think with the Cheney's, it just, it, it took an extra step. It became about this kind of the fatherhood, the fatherly nature of the presidency mixed with this desire for his wife to love him, for his family to be proud of him. And these are all kind of like decent things to want. And then when you threw 9-11 in there and the paranoia and fear of that, I, I just feel like it, it detonated. I feel like he became a very scary individual in a lot of ways yeah. uh, from that point on. Yeah, definitely. Um, how much was left on the cutting room floor? This is a movie I look at and I feel like they shot so much. There's, there's <laughs> like, I, because just, I love the editing style, but it just, if you know what you're looking for, you can see where, Oh, okay. They shot a lot of stuff that's yeah. around this image or that scene. And uh, I'm just curious, like what your editing process was like, what you found through the editing uh, things like that. Well, I was, you know, obviously, you know, Hank Corwin is one of the great 
living editors. Mm. He's a, he's a genius. And, uh, and we definitely had quite a chore on our hands. Once again, to tell the story of the man who doesn't want his story told the big two things we lost. There was one thing I really didn't want to give up was the story of them as teenagers, Dick and Lynn Chaney and how they met and how they fell in, fell in love. And Greg Frazier, our DP, just shot that so beautifully, man. It looked like splendor in the grass. It was just like <laughs> luscious film. And then uh, Nick Bertel, our composer, put this beautiful music over it. And the audience was just not into it. They just did not care about 15-year-old, <laughs> 16, 17-year-old Dick Cheney. So we tried so many times. We did it long. We did it medium, short. We put it different places. And that was probably the biggest loss. And then the other one that was pretty ambitious was we had a musical number. We had an actual, I had people telling me it was the musical number in there. I was like, no, tell me about the musical number. So tell me about the musical number. God, I couldn't get that one to work either. Those <laughs> are the two things I couldn't get to work. Um, it was kind of when Rumsfeld is teaching Cheney about Washington, D.C. and how to get ahead. And it's sort of like a, neither a borrower nor a lender B is kind of giving him that speech. But the speech is basically like, who cares about anything? <laughs> you got to just get ahead of people, like, you know, making your moves. I think there was a line in it, like the means justify the ends, which I always love. Just <laughs> And uh, we had Brittany Howard from the Alabama Shakes just wailing on it. Nick Bertel wrote this uh, just beautiful song. Uh, we had the compo- the uh, choreographer from Hamilton choreographed it. It's breathtaking. It's incredible. And it just didn't work. It was like you didn't need it. It was too long in that area of the movie. You know, storytelling beats everything. We tried. Oh, my God. We tried 15 versions of it. I mean, we moved it here. We moved it there. We played it really short. We played it way longer. We put scenes in the middle of it. I mean, we tried every single thing you could do. I mean, the only reason it doesn't pain me to this moment is because I know we tried everything we could do. Mm-hmm. But um, but those were the two. Those were the two. Like when you were in the edit room, you're like, well, this is amazing. This is going to work. And you just forget like the movie tells you what it wants. Yeah. And in that case, <laughs> it was like, get rid of these two things. Other than that, we did pretty well. Yeah. Other than that, it was just those two chunks that could not make their way in the movie. Special but, features on the DVD, maybe? Darn right. All well, right. what I did was I took... Um, them as teenagers, and I actually cut it into a short film. Oh, nice. A black and white short film, a little bit in the uh, spirit of, uh, I'm trying to think of the comparison. Well, anyway, it's its own little kind of short <laughs> film about their young love. Do we have a title for that yet? Uh, it's called Best of All, He Loves Me Back. <laughs> That's what it's called. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, and the musical's on there, too, and there's another little scene we cut out, too, that's on there. So You mentioned Greg Fraser there. I've known Greg for 10 years, one of the best DPs working i feel could uh, not agree with you more yeah. i, I want to talk about the visual approach to the movie um you know I'm, I'm i often ask filmmakers if there were references uh, any kind of inspiration not just in film but artwork uh you know photography anything like that what kind of a visual approach did you guys sit down and talk about you know the big trick we had was that we wanted an evolution to the visual approach without looking gimmicky you know, the very lazy first thought would be you'd shoot the early Wyoming stuff in black and white. When you go to D.C., you go to color. It's like, well, that's kind of lame. So what we just talked about was just subtle gradients uh, in the color palette as we moved ahead. 
you know, we were looking at stuff like Eggleston, still photographs for the early days, kind of what you would think you would look at. And, you know, we looked at a, a, a bunch of the famous 70s movies as far as offices in Washington, D.C. We looked at all of that. But uh, and then because we were shooting on film, we also talked about how we were going to let some of the dirt stay in the film and the early stuff. But really, the big breakthrough was when Greg was like, we should use 16, we should use Super 8, we should use the vintage old TV cameras whenever we can. And once that came into the movie, I feel like the movie really kind of found its mm-hmm. its visual style. Um, so the 35 was always the lush reality, the bottom of the movie. I mean, that was the movie. But man, oh man, when that 16 and that Super 8 started getting in there, we were just like, oh, I can't get enough of this. Mm-hmm. Um and that gave enough diversity to the look that, because, you know, the movie covers six decades um, and we just needed something to reflect that. And, you know, obviously, as we got later, you start seeing video, you start seeing more modern looks. It was always complimentary. It was always off to the side. Um, but, yeah, it was he, he just loved it. And, you know, he's such a camera geek. Yeah. He knows every one of those cameras. He knows everyone, how they work. He gets every look like perfect. I mean, I still can't believe the way he shot Colin Powell, like uh, Tyler Perry. I mean, it looks like it's the real footage of Colin Powell's speech. It yeah. just blows me away. Yeah, um, yeah he he's something special, man. That guy, wow. <laughs> How about color palette? You talk about what yeah. colors would mean. Uh, color palette, you know, we, we definitely had uh, richer, kind of earthier tones in the beginning. That was closer to Wyoming, closer to like a man, an American man kind of forming himself. Our idea was that once you have a fully formed Cheney, there's a cooler, colder, kind of more precise uh, uh, palette to it that came about. But at the same time, we didn't want it to feel like a giant gear jump. You know, we wanted them all to be a little bit close to each other. So it was pretty subtle stuff. But uh, and, and a lot of that, the way it came out was just in the modern day stuff with the 35. I would say, OK, now clean all the dirt out. Now let's get a little sharper and uh, we would hit some of those blues and grays a little bit harder in the more modern stuff. Um, But yeah, I think we just let the earlier stuff be dirty and a little mangier and you mixed in a little of that super eight and a little bit of that 16. And then as it was moving forward, it was just getting like a little bit colder, a little bit, you know, cleaner. Um, But hopefully our our goal was that the audience never consciously was aware of it. It just, it's just happening. Yeah. Was it always like on the page? Was it written like in a scattered, temporally speaking kind of way? Like, was it always going to just bounce all around? Yeah. You know, starting with 9-11, then going back and then things like this. Um, There's a few of the things we discovered in the edit room. It actually originally did. Well, that's not true. The the first draft of the script did start with 9-11. I then switched it out and we then started more on them as kids. Hmm. So actually, then we went back to 9-11 for the beginning part. But yeah, there were always little time jumps back and forth. I mean, one of the things we are aware of is just the biopic structure is a tough one. It's something we've all probably seen hundreds of biopics through our our life. And when it's it's, um, sequential like that, when it's just lined up, it can get a little tiring, a little pounding. Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing that Hank and I were playing around with in the edit room was when do we time jump? How much do we time jump? Is it okay to sometimes stay semi-sequential? Um, 
And what we found was just like a little bit of a, a time dash, a little bit of a jump would go a long way. Just taking it a little bit out of sequence, then let it go back to sequence, a little bit out of sequence, back to sequence. Um, that was a lot of our experimenting mm. in the edit room was just trying to get that exactly right. How much jumping, how little jumping, when to let it play out. Very tricky, very yeah. tricky. But man, you could feel it when it would get too sequential. It just, all of a sudden you just start feeling like you're watching a biopic, like you've yeah. seen 300 of them. So we would have to go and mess with it at that point. Even within scenes, you know, when it said it's most radical, if it'll just throw something in there, it's almost expressionistic in, in the way it's dealing yeah. with the editorial. It's, there's a... It's kind of an interesting uh, tradition. Of, uh, JFK to me is one of the most exquisitely crafted films oh. of all time, especially in the editing. So I kind of think of that, you know, the way it's just, it's shards, you know, at times. I think that's kind of, I think that's one of Hank's signatures. I think yeah. that's, he does it uh, probably better than anyone. Yeah. There's a moment in the movie I really love where uh, Dick says, let's make sure to get uh, my daughter Liz into the State Department. Mm -hmm. And Hank just did this quick cut to Liz at the table going, okay, dad. And it's like the table from like a scene 10 minutes before. Yeah. And he's like, okay, dad. And then it goes right back to the scene. But like it's more of a feeling than it is like a logical thing that you're clocking. And when he's on his game, which he almost always is, that's that's how that stuff really lands. Yeah. yeah. How did you decide on uh, Nicholas Patel for the score? That was easy. That was, <laughs> uh, I had the luck of working with him and Hank on uh, Big Short. And I forgot Nicholas did Big Short. Did yeah. he do the Big Short? Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Well, that answers the question. <laughs> well, but part of the trick is the reason you don't think of him immediately with the Big Short was there's so much found stuff in that movie. You know, we were trying to show the kind of irrational exuberance of our culture and how crazed our culture was that there's a lot of like, you know, uh, what would you call it? Diegetic music mm -hmm. in that movie. And, um, so a lot of people weren't aware what was Nick's score and what was something that was, you know, source. Because, yeah. um, man, he wrote some beautiful music for that movie. And I always felt like well, Nick never got his due for it. And then later I would ask to friends and then I would talk to friends and they would say, oh, yeah, that's that classical piece you played. And I was like, no, no, our composer wrote that. Like He's amazing. Uh, he's incredible. So this was such a treat because on this one, he was just totally off the chain. Like, yeah. We hardly use any source music. I think it's over 75 minutes of score, and he just, he he knocked us over on this one. It's just incredible. He really harnesses some of the just, like, Shakespearean qualities of the, the epic, you know, especially, it just, I watched it again last night. It's the one movie, by the way, my wife has been dying to see all year. Oh, cool. I want to mention that because she doesn't get to see everything anymore. We've got a two-year-old now. So it's always, like, one or two movies, and this was, like, number one. So God we watched it her. last night. She loved it. Uh, but I was the, the big just crescendo of the movie that ends with that. This is going to air after the movie comes up. That ends with that heart lying on the table. Uh, the score there is just everything. Stunning. Yeah. He's a beast, man. He's the real deal. I mean, he's really got something special. You don't see guys like him come along, but, you know, for every once every 10 years. I mean, that lineman cue with those giant horns and... Mm -hmm. And when you see him when he's on the pole, I, I can't get over that cue either. It, it, he and I talked about it. We bring him in very early in our process because he's more like just a collaborator than just, you know, he's more than just a composer. He's definitely a collaborator. So I talked to him when I was writing the script and I just talked to him about what I was thinking about. I would have this epic quality. He's like, you should check out Mahler's ninth because Mahler's heart was failing him. 
And some people think the time signature is off because of his heart. Wow. So when I wrote the script, I listened to Mahler's Ninth pretty much the whole time. But then, like very early on, and he comes in way earlier than any other composer would, he starts coming in writing these demos for the movie that are just mind-blowingly good. And Hank's able to, like, bounce off of them. And I swear to God, like, half of them ended up, the demos, he went to London and recorded with orchestras. Like, a lot of his music that was his first thought ended up staying in the movie. So Mm -hmm. he's a huge part of our process. And it's like Hank, Nick, and I just bounce off each other in the edit all the time. Um, what were you guys talking about? That what would the music convey? What, was it meant to be this kind of like turn it into almost this? I don't know if the word is baroque, just this big epic in a way. Always, yeah. it, it always was supposed to be a big American sound. I mean, one of the ideas we talked about was like we kind of know what the three act structure of the American epic is. You know, it's kind of act one is like striving. I'm going to rise up. Act two is things are starting to work. The end of act two, there's a moment of doubt, but you overcome it. And act three is triumph. And one of our questions was like, what's act four? (laughs) And, you know, so another friend of mine saw it. He called like the music that Nick did for this, like dark Copeland. (laughs) And it's a pretty good description. And and that was kind of it. It's, It's the like heroic infrastructure of the American mythology, but like, kind of screwed with and warped a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He just released the uh, score yesterday, actually. It just oh. came out. I just bought it. It's like, oh. You bought it? They, they couldn't send you one? I know, right? <laughs> How about it? Uh, we're recording this in December. I imagine uh, Cheney has not seen this film. Um, has anyone in Washington seen the film? Like, I'm, I'm just curious if what that world might think of the movie if you've shown it to anyone. Well, remember, we're talking about Dick Cheney, so he probably has seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, you know, my thinking on Cheney is he's a tough dude. And there's been a lot of things written about him, a lot of comments made on him. I think most of the movie he wouldn't have a problem with. I mean, it's accurate to what he did. I mean, he invaded Iraq. Like, all the stuff's true. Uh, I think the very end where we definitely give it a tragic twist in the end, he probably wouldn't like that. Um, I'd be most curious what his daughter Mary would think of this. Mm-hmm. I'd really be interested to hear that. Yeah, We are attempting to do a couple screenings in Washington, D.C. They're not locked in yet, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll have to let you know how that goes. Yeah. I, I, you know, He's a, such an enigmatic but looming figure. I'm also curious to see... You know, when he left office, his approval rating was under 20%. It's one of the lowest ever recorded. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how much the right just comes out to defend him out of, like, habit. Or do they kind of go, you're on your own. Like, I'm, I'm curious just about the way they react to it. I'm, I'm talking about, like, the militant right. Not yeah, the, yeah. When we screened the movie, there were plenty of Republicans in the audience who were like, hey, I'm fine with it. This is what happened. So we, we didn't have any problems with that. But, like, that... That super militant side. I'm curious if they complain about it at all. We'll, yeah. We'll have to see. And he's kind of bubbled back up, at, you know, with the passing of H.W. recently. And we, we saw him on, at the funeral. And, and, you know, so it's it's interesting to see him again right before this movie is about to come out. It looks pretty so, spry. Yeah. It didn't look bad. And, you know, his daughter now is like third in command in the House mm-hmm. of Representatives. I mean, she's in the minority. But still, that's a high position that she's, she's reached. That's the position her... Uh, her father used to have. So 
mean, there's a chance you could see Speaker Liz Cheney. That could actually happen in the next five or 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Since we're on the subject, I I was kind of just wanting to get your thought. What are your expectations for 2020? God, I have no idea at this point, right? I don't think the Democrats know what they're going for. I think, I mean, the question is, does Trump make it to 2020 or did the Republicans turn on him? It's kind of up to the Republicans at this point. Mm -hmm. He's in a lot of trouble right now. Yep. I mean, one thing we all know is if the economy falters, uh, that's an easy story to write. But uh, and the other thing I've learned is it seems like in the last five or 10 years, all all political predictions have been horribly wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's almost like Oscar predictions. Yeah, it's really (laughs) been weird, man. Everything's just weird right now. The simulation is breaking down, as they say. It kind of is. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're at that place. So. I don't know. I don't know. You know, with the Dems, it's a battle between kind of the traditional DNC and the more progressive Dems, which side will win. And mm-hmm. I'm very curious. Biden's making noise like he wants to run. That seems strange to me. Does that I, feel I, wrong I, to you? What's that? Does that feel wrong to you? Like a it was bad wrong move? to me. Yeah. yeah, it feels like you're going back to kind of a, a system that really hasn't worked very well for mm-hmm. the DNC. But, you know, we'll see who he runs against. I, I really have a feeling Trump's not going to run again. I think even if he gets to 2020, he resigns. And I think he walks away and just says, you know, I was too good for you all or gives some speech like that. I, I, I'm going out on top. Exactly. <laughs> That's how he'll spend it. I mean, doesn't it seem like it? <laughs> yeah, That's that seems his like something he would do. Yeah. Can't imagine he gets past 2020. But once again, I clearly don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're a Bernie fan. I mean, are you are you hopeful that he would run again? That would be exciting. Uh, yeah, I think no matter what, even if he wins or not, I, I just think he, he brings a nice, you know, uh, breath of fresh air into any kind of race. I love that no one owns him. You know, there's no big money, like, pulling him around on a leash. I think that's exciting. Uh, I think there's some other, you know, I think Beto O'Rourke from Texas certainly mm-hmm. clearly got some people excited. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I've always been a huge fan of. She's another one. No one owns her. That's my big thing is like, I just want someone that no one owns. Yeah. You know, I want someone not taking money from banks, oil. And, you know, if you're someone like that, I'm immediately interested. So uh, I like Sherrod Brown out of Ohio. Mm-hmm. I think he's really sharp. I think Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown would be a really rock solid ticket. Mm-hmm. Like they're both veterans of DC. They're both progressive. They're realistic, but yet no one owns them. Yeah. You know, um, now that I've just said that, there's no way it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I mean, as as you say, it's it's hard to to kind of figure out where the wind's going to blow with no this idea. stuff. So, if, or if there's going to even be wind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last thing here, uh, you're a guinea pig for a new segment on the show. This is our 101st episode, so we're going to try something different. Congratulations! Gonna, thank you, thank you. We're going to ask people. I think at the end of every episode, you tell me what is the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Oh, I like that question. All right. I got a very definitive answer for you. Awesome. It's the first movie I really remember as a young kid. And I remember watching it. I saw it in a movie theater with my dad, I believe. And it was the man who would be king. Mm. And I've never forgotten it to this day. It had such a mystery to it and a scope. And the reveal in the end of the, if you haven't seen it yet, don't listen. <laughs> the reveal in the end of the skull with the gold crown on it. Mm-hmm. Also, that score was so incredible. Where were you? I was in Worcester, Massachusetts. 
and what was I in second grade, first grade, something mm-hmm. like that. God bless my dad. We went to the movies a lot. And I remember that was a big one. And that's one I've gone back and watched through the years. And it still holds quite nicely. But I was a little kid, made me fall in love with movies. And I'm 50 years old now. And I can still watch it and still love movies because of it. Was it the atmosphere of the movie? Was there something about the visuals? Like, uh, is it just hard to peg down why it sticks with you? It's such a mystery. They're yeah. going into the snow. They're going to Alexander the Great supposedly had this kingdom. No one knows if it's real or not. Who are these people? What is this strange land? You know, it's Kipling. And uh, it's just the mystery of the whole thing of it. And I remember being a kid and it made the world feel so big and full of such like crazy possibility. It's also shot beautifully. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks amazing. And then it also has a turn in it that's kind of tragic. Like you fall in love with Sean Connery's character and his ego starts to take over. You know what I'm realizing as I'm talking about it? It sounds a little bit like Vice. <laughs> there you go. What a note to end on. Uh, the movie is called Vice. You should check it out because it's fantastic and it's out now. Uh, take the family. Uh, find out a little bit of maybe how we got to where we are. Uh, Adam McKay, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Man. Thank you so much for having me, man. Really fun.